isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all, to feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Welcome to a new episode of Canada, A Yearly Journey. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash Canada EHX. First, on every single tier, you get completely ad-free episodes. And you get a say in what topics I cover on my podcasts. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Or you can go to buymeacupofcoffee slash Craig U. All of these links are also in my show notes. And for people who donate, I have various levels of benefits. For $5, you get a thank you at the start of the next episode of Canadian History X, Canada's Great War, and from John to Justin, and on social media. For $10, you get everything from the $5, plus this episode is sponsored by, with your name at the start. Also, I'll state it's sponsored by you on social media. For $20, everything from the $5 and $10, plus a second episode sponsored by you, and promotion of something you're working on. And for $50, everything from the $5, $10, and $20 plus, you get to choose a topic for me to cover on Canadian History X. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And I'm on Instagram and TikTok where I put up daily videos about Canada's history. Just go to my username, Bairdo37. And you can find weekly videos on Canada's history on my YouTube channel. Just go to youtube.com slash c slash Canadian History X. If you want to find transcripts of every episode I've ever done, you can go to my website, CanadaEHX.com. And there's over 700 posts on Canada's history there. I also want to say thank you and welcome to my newest patron, Sarah White. Thanks, Sarah. Now, before I start, I want to talk about... The Local History Atlas. This was created by one of my listeners, Ben Woodward, and it's fantastic. It's this wonderful website where you can see a, a Google Maps image of Canada, and you can visit all of the places in Canada, and within these places are my local history podcast episodes that you can listen to, and one of the great things about it is you can add to it. You can put your own pictures in. You can put your own information. It's creating this wonderful historical mosaic of Canada and it's a wonderful website uh, I have the link in my show notes but if you also want to visit yourself it's atlas.digitalhistory.ca and we can create this wonderful mosaic of Canada's history all of us you can learn about Canada's history if you're going on a road trip you can use this wonderful site to see where you're going and the amazing things that you can see so be sure to check it out The year 1869 came only two years after the Confederation of Canada, but would be one of the watershed years for Canadian history with a multitude of important births, deaths, and events throughout the year. First, Lord Lisgar would replace Charles Monk as the Governor-General of Canada on February 2nd. At his swearing-in on that day, the Ottawa Daily Citizen reported, quote, The commission of His Excellency Sir John Young as Governor-General Having arrived, he was sworn in on Tuesday as Governor-General of Canada. He afterwards received addresses from the City Corporation, the Legislature, and other bodies, and then held a levy. 
everything passed off well. End quote. A special display was held in Ottawa of arts and manufacturers, which Young visited and was greatly impressed by. The mayor of Ottawa also declared that a holiday be observed throughout the city. As governor-general, he would deal with several issues in the new country of Canada. The first was diffusing Canadian-American tensions that were created by the Fenian raids, but also the Red River resistance, which I'll talk about in just a little bit. It was during the resistance that the United States government would prevent the Canadian ship the Shikara from the Sault Ste. Marie Canal, which was heading west. Young would make a formal protest stating it had no military supplies on it, while adding that armed American ships regularly used the Welland Canal. His protest worked, and the ban on passage was lifted by the American government. And when Fenians were captured during those raids, Young would prevent the hanging of the prisoners, likely to maintain good relations with the Americans. Young, who had also supported the Confederation of Canada, also had to mediate the conflict over the transfer of Rupert's land to Canada, but more on that later too. He would return to England in 1872 due to poor health and passed away in 1876. On February 11th, Patrick James Whelan would be hanged for the assassination of Thomas Darcy McGee the previous year. McGee, who we saw helped create Canadian Confederation, had been assassinated on April 7th after a parliamentary debate that lasted until midnight. As for Whelan, he was accused, convicted, and subsequently hanged for his crime. Many believe to this day that he was nothing more than a scapegoat for a Protestant plot. Whelan maintained his innocence throughout the proceedings, but the government needed someone to blame. Most of the evidence against him was circumstantial, and there was also allegations of bribing of witnesses to ensure a guilty verdict. Whelan would be hanged in front of 5,000 people, and it was said that he met his death with manliness and faith. He told the crowd he was innocent, but he did know who killed McGee. His last words were, God save Ireland, and God save my soul. According to the weekly British Whig, Whelan stated, quote, I am prepared, but I am not the man who has done the deed. There are others. No matter now, I am under oath, and I won't break it. End quote. This was the second last public hanging in Canadian history. The last public hanging would occur with Nicholas Melody on December 7, 1869. He was put to death on the outside wall of the jail in Goderich, Ontario, for the murder of his father and his stepmother. After this point, the public could attend some hangings by invitation only until 1935. The law officially changed after Thomasina Sarro was executed on March 28, 1935. After the hangman received an incorrect weight for her, she was decapitated when hung. On March 5th, John Redpath would pass away at the age of 73. Redpath was born in 1796 in Scotland, the son of a farm worker and his second wife. In 1816, he would arrive in Quebec City with nearly no money and walked barefoot to Montreal. There, he used the experience he had as a stonemason to get work and he would help install the first oil street lamps in the city. Within a few years, he was running his own construction business, and that would lead him to helping to build the future Lachine Canal. With the success of the canal project, Redpath would get more work and would build the Notre Dame Basilica and the first buildings of McGill University. In 1833, he was asked to sit on the board of directors of the Bank of Montreal, a position he would hold for the next 36 years. From 1840 to 1843, he was also a Montreal city councillor, and he would cede land that became Drummond Street, which was named for his second wife, Jane Drummond. He would found Redpath Sugar in 1854, which became a major employer in Montreal and operates to this day. 
and within a few years of its creation, the sugar refinery was exporting 7,000 tons of raw sugar. The Ottawa Daily Citizen reported, quote, The funeral of the late Mr. John Redpath was the largest witnessed here in some time. The employees of the sugar refinery numbered some hundreds, and a large concourse of friends of the deceased were in attendance. End quote. On August 25th, Charles Jeffries was born in England. He would come to Canada in 1880 and became one of the most renowned painters in Canadian history. During the First World War, he would paint soldiers training in Niagara for the Canadian War Records Department. By the time of his death in 1952, he would have painted thousands of paintings of Canadian history. In 1972, 1,000 paintings would end up at the Public Archives of Canada. His love of history would be immortalized in a plaque at his former home saying, quote, If my work has stirred any interest in our country and its past, I am more than paid. End quote. On September 2nd, Maud Abbott was born in Quebec. She would go on to become one of Canada's earliest medical graduates and an expert on congenital heart disease. She was also one of the first women to obtain a BA from McGill University. Raised by her grandmother, her cousin John Abbott would become Canada's third prime minister and one of her descendants would also be an actor by the name of Christopher Plummer. Abbott would become an expert in the heart and a world leader in regards to heart defects. In 1904, she wrote a chapter of congenital heart disease for William Osler's System of Modern Medicine, which he called the best thing he had ever read on the subject. Abbott would go on to found the Federation of Medical Women of Canada, and in 1936, she wrote The Atlas of Congenital Cardiac Disease. Over the course of her life, she wrote 140 books and papers and gave countless lectures. She would pass away on her birthday from a brain hemorrhage, and in 1943, she was painted on the mural of the National Institute of Cardiology of Mexico City. She's the only Canadian and the only woman depicted in the work. On October 24th, the Canadian Illustrated News would be founded in Montreal. It was the first magazine in world history to produce photographs at a successful rate, and over the course of its 14 years of existence, it would publish 15,000 illustrations. The Ottawa Daily Citizen would write, quote, The Canadian Illustrated News made its first appearance on Saturday evening. It is beautifully printed and seems to meet with a good sale. End quote. On November 3rd, the Hamilton Tigers were founded, becoming the first Canadian football professional team after the Toronto Argos. The team would win a Dominion Championship in 1908 and five Grey Cups in 1913, 1915, 1928, 1929, and 1932. The team would suspend operations during both world wars and would fold for good in 1950 when it merged with the Hamilton Wildcats to form the current Hamilton Tiger Cats. On November 19th, the deed of surrender recognizing the purchase of Rupert's land and the Northwestern Territory from the Hudson's Bay Company by the English Crown was completed. The Crown rejected the $10 million offer from the Americans for Rupert's land, which today would be worth about $189 million and the offer came just as the Americans had bought Alaska from the Russians. Instead, the company returned Rupert's land to Britain, and the British government then gave the land to Canada, while also giving the new country £300,000 to compensate the Hudson's Bay Company. In the deal, the company received 5% of the fertile land to be opened up for settlement. Governor Anthony Musgrave would state, quote, I have now to inform you that the terms on which Rupert's land and the Northwest Territory are to be united to Canada have been agreed to by the parties concerned, and the Queen will probably be advised before long to issue an order in council 
which will incorporate, in the Dominion of Canada, the whole of the British possessions of North American continent, except the colony of British Columbia. End quote. In 1870, the deed of surrender came into force, and the territory that had once been Rupert's land would become the Northwest Territories. And the fact that the Indigenous and Métis were not consulted over the change would lead to a watershed moment in Canadian history, but more on that later. On the same day that the deed did come into force, July 15, 1870, the province of Manitoba would be admitted into Confederation. In what would become a common decision for the next 75 years, Newfoundland rejected joining Confederation. Initially, it actually looked as though Newfoundland would join the country, with the agreement of 80 cents per head of the population being part of the agreement. The province in return would give up the rights to its forests, mines, and more, and the residents of the island would be firmly against joining, and negotiations would eventually fail. Newfoundland would come close to joining Confederation in 1892, but it would remain a British colony until 1907 when it obtained Dominion status. Newfoundland wouldn't join Confederation until 1949. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Fort Whoop-Up was built this year by John Healy. Officially serving as a trading post, the first fort would burn down within a year, and a second fort was built soon after at a cost of $25,000. Situated to near where Lethbridge is today, the traders would brew a drink called Whoop-Up Bug Juice, an alcohol spiked with ginger, molasses, and red pepper. It was then colored black with chewing tobacco, watered down, and boiled. And while there was legal trading that occurred at the fort, the trade of alcohol with the indigenous was rampant. Other whiskey trading forts were also set up including Robber's Roost at the junction of the Belly and Old Man River, Weather's Wax Post, Fort Spitzy near Current High River, and another post in the Cypress Hills and one near Blackfoot Crossing. It was due to the whiskey trade that in only a few years the Canadian government would create the Northwest Mounted Police. At the same time the whiskey traders were coming into Canada, Wolf hunters were doing the same, wiping out massive populations of the species throughout the prairies. These hunters would kill bison, then poison the meat of the bison. At this point, they waited for wolves to eat the meat and die. The wolves would be skinned and bounties collected, amounting to about $2.50 per hide. The dogs of the indigenous would often eat the meat and die, which added extra hardships to the indigenous who were already dealing with declining bison numbers. And this would actually lead to the Cypress Hills Massacre in just a few years, something I have covered on the podcast. Timothy Eaton opened his first store in Toronto this year. Eaton's, for those who don't remember, was one of the most successful companies in Canadian history. In 1869, the year he moved, Eaton purchased a dry goods and haberdashery business with his wife Margaret for $6,500 in Toronto. In order to promote his business, he came up with two revolutionary ideas. First, he made it standard that all goods had one price, and there would be no haggling and no credit. Second, he allowed all purchases to come with a money-back guarantee. The first Eaton store was only 24 feet by 60 feet, with two large shop windows that overlooked the street. Four people worked in the store, and the expectation of everyone 
was that the store was not going to succeed due to its no credit and no haggling policy. As it turned out, the store began to prosper, and in 1883, Eaton moved his store to 190 Young Street. The store was innovative for several reasons. First, it had the largest plate glass windows in Toronto, and the first electric lights ever installed in a Canadian store. And at one time, Eaton's was the largest apartment store chain in Canada, and its catalogue was found in most Canadian homes. The company would have many innovations including, like I said, not haggling prices and having only one cash price. The first catalogue was published in 1884 and consisted of 34 pages in total. The catalogue would become an icon of Canadian culture and would feature in many important works including the hockey sweater, when a Quebec boy asks his mum for a Montreal Canadian sweater from the catalogue, but receives a Maple Leafs one instead. My mother did not like the order forms that were included in the catalogue. There was too much English on them, and she did not understand a word of it. When she ordered my hockey sweater, she did what she always did. She took our writing pad and wrote in her fine school teacher's hand, Dear Mr. Eaton, would you be so kind as to send me a Canadian hockey sweater for my boy, Rock, who is 10 years old and a little bit tall for his age. Dr. Robitaille thinks he's a little too thin. I'm sending you $3. Please send me the change if there's any. I hope your packing will be better than it was last time. Mr. Eaton answered my mother's letter promptly. Two weeks after she wrote it, we received the sweater. It was one of the greatest disappointments in my life. Instead of the red, white and blue Montreal Canadian sweater, Mr. Eaton had sent the blue and white sweater of the Toronto Maple Leafs. I had always worn the red, white, and blue sweater of the Montreal Canadiens. All my friends wore the red, white, and blue sweater. And besides, the Toronto team was always being beaten by the Canadiens. With tears in my eyes, I summoned up the strength to say, I never wear that uniform. First of all, said my mother, you're going to Triton. If you make up your mind about something before you try it, my boy, you won't go very far in this life. I was crying. I can't wear that. Why? The sweater is a perfect fit. Maurice Richard would never wear it. You're not, Maurice Richard. Besides, it's not what you put on your back that matters. It's what you put inside your head. You never make me put in my head to wear a Toronto Maple sweater. My mother sighed in despair and explained to me. If you don't keep this sweater, which fits you perfectly, I'll have to write to Monsieur Eaton and explain that you don't want to wear the Toronto sweater. Monsieur Eaton understands French perfectly, but he's English and is going to be insulted. The catalogue would run until 1976. And as for Eaton's, it would suffer in a changing retail climate and would go into bankruptcy in 1999. I looked at the history of Eaton's in an early episode of the podcast, so check it out. 
What does the end of the Eaton's catalog mean to you? That's our question today. Cross-country checkup. Where are you calling from, please? Montreal. Yes, ma'am? Uh, I'm really quite upset about Eaton's uh, not having a catalog any longer because I, um, my, my main reason for buying from Eaton's, I guess, is because I worked for them for years, but they, I felt that I could trust them. But, however, this last couple of years, and many years that we have been having a country home, uh, I ordered, uh, we ordered a, um, a pump from them. And it took a year to get the pump with four letters in between. And then when we got the pump, it, didn't, it didn't even, wasn't the right pump, but we took it just the same for a deep well. Now, last year we ordered different things uh, by phone to send to our country place and distinctly repeated back uh, from the Montreal office here. And it was nearly $500 worth of stuff and uh, merchandise, and they never showed up. They didn't know anything about it or anything else. Everything was distinctly given to them with two telephone numbers. I feel sorry for a Teton company if they have uh, there many people like that taking ours. I blame their staff for it. Their staff? Yes, I do. Okay. At one time, the staff was properly trained, and they wouldn't dare do anything like that. Mm-hmm. And this is it. I'm really sorry to see Eaton's fade out because they're a wonderful firm. Right. Thank you very much for calling us, ma'am. Cross-country checkup. Where are you calling from, please? From Montreal. Yes, sir. Yes, about the catalog. Well, uh, I have kept uh, a bad souvenir because uh, uh, ordering by catalogs is a chance to take. Uh, I cannot uh, accept to buy a pair of shoes without trying it before. And uh, and also uh, uh, clothes and, and things of that sort. So uh, uh, I uh, consider the catalog as an expedient when nothing uh, nothing else can be done. Uh, I use the catalog as a, uh, a, con- a consulting material for pre-shopping before going to the, to a store or things of that sort. Uh, but the catalog itself might be considered an, an instrument uh, to get a, no- a certain amount of knowledge, but uh, not to buy, unless there's no other way of doing it. As more people began to move out of the Canadian prairies, they brought with them diseases that the indigenous people were never exposed to. As such, a smallpox epidemic hit the indigenous tribes, making its way with devastating efficiency through the Blackfoot, Pegan, and Blood tribes. One man who would survive this epidemic was Crowfoot, who would become an important indigenous figure only a few years later. Another was Chief Big Bear. Both of these men I've covered on the podcast. Marie Susan Rye began to bring orphans from Europe over to Canada this year. She would acquire a building in Niagara that she would rename Our Western Home on December 1st. After the children were trained, they would come to Canada to work as domestic servants. By 1895, she will have helped bring 4,000 poor Scottish and English children over to Canada. On June 27th, George Copway passed away. Born Ka Gagagabao, which means he who stands forever in 1818 in Trenton, Ontario, his father, John Copway, was an Anishinaabe chief and medicine man. Copway would describe his father as an excellent hunter and a man who brought in more furs than anyone else. His mother was a member of the Eagle tribe, whom he described as an active, sensible woman and a good hunter. In July of 1834, Copway was invited to work with his uncle and cousin as a missionary to the Anishinaabe, who lived on the western shore of Lake Superior. 
and during the next few years he would help translate the Acts of the Apostles and the Gospel of St. Luke into his language. Throughout his work as a missionary, the Methodists would provide his education and eventually ordain him as a minister. In 1836, Copway would be traveling down the Mississippi through Sioux Territory when he was taken prisoner with his party. As an Anishinaabe, he was an enemy of the Sioux, and he would be released after three days after he communicated that they were in fact Christian missionaries. In 1840, he would meet Elizabeth Howell, the daughter of farmers in the Toronto area, and they would fall in love and soon marry. Following their marriage, they would move to Minnesota and work as missionaries. Together, they would have a son and a daughter. After he and his family moved to New York City, where he wrote The Life, History, and Travels of Kagakabao, which became the first book to be published by a Canadian indigenous person. In its first year, it went through six printings and became a bestseller. This book described his youth with the Anishinaabe and then as a Methodist missionary. It also made him the first international Canadian literary celebrity. His autobiography would describe much of his life and his travels through the Great Lakes region, but the main focus was the narrative of his missionary work with occasional moments of reflection and adventure. He would speak of the landscape a great deal in his autobiography as well, and he would note that the sand points of Grand Island had sunk near Sault Ste. Marie, and he would write, quote, The Great Spirit had removed from under that point to some other place because the Methodist missionaries had encamped there the previous fall and had, by their prayers, driven the spirit from under that point. End quote. As a celebrity, Copway began to advocate for indigenous territory, suggesting there be a 150-square-mile territory be established in the American Midwest. The tribes out there were beginning to feel the encroachment of European and American settlers. But, as can be expected, this proposal was not approved by the American Congress. He would publish his plan in a pamphlet called Organization of a New Indian Territory, where the official language would be Ojibwa. He planned to call the land Kakaka which translates as ever to be. Sadly, by the time he passed away in 1869, his celebrity had faded and he was mostly broke and unknown. One of the most important events of this year, and actually in Canadian history, would be the Red River Resistance. Now I know a lot of people call it the Red River Rebellion, but I've never considered this to be a rebellion. It was a resistance against encroachment and they weren't looking to leave Canada, but more have representation in Canada. The resistance would be the first crisis for the new federal government that at this time was only two years old. Following the purchase of Rupert's land from the Hudson's Bay Company, William McDougall, an English-speaking governor, was appointed for the territory by the government. This was heavily opposed by the Métis and French-speaking inhabitants of the area that would eventually be Manitoba. The Métis had been in the area for over a century by this point, but the area was settled as a Red River colony in 1812 by Lord Selkirk, which led directly to the Pemmican War between the Northwest Company and the Hudson's Bay Company, something else I've covered on my podcast. When surveyors were sent out to begin to plot land according to the township system used in Ontario, the Métis led by Louis Riel prevented the surveyors from entering the territory. The Métis then created a provisional government, to which they invited Anglophone representatives to be equal members. Riel then negotiated with the federal government to make Manitoba a province. And throughout this, local Hudson's Bay Company officials remained neutral. Originally, the government had planned to take control of the territory on December 1, 1869, but the resistance of the Métis prevented this. 
At the same time he was negotiating, Riel's men arrested members of a pro-Canadian faction, including a man named Thomas Scott. Riel's government tried and convicted Scott, then executed him by firing squad on the claim that he threatened to murder Riel. He would be put to death on March 4, 1870, and this would have long-standing ramifications that would go on for decades. I'll talk more about the Red River Resistance in the next episode, since most of the events take place in 1870. So that was the year 1869, a very important year in Canadian history, and the last year of the 1860s that we'll be looking at. Next week, of course, we'll be looking at 1870. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. And you can donate to the podcast by going to canadaehx.com and clicking donate. And I also want to thank all of my wonderful patrons. And I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Sarah White, Tom McMillan, Mike Sullivan, Wendy Mills, Keelan Pringnitz, Michael Matthews, Joanna Parker, Jeff Dahl, Vobbs, Robert Page, Richard T., Colin Johnson, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nixon Ree, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Information from Canadian Encyclopedia, Biography, Governors General of Canada, Ottawa Citizen, Wikipedia, Montreal Gazette, and the British Week Standard. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.